Welcome to the 21st Century Church podcast. Please check out our website at 21stcenturychurch.co.uk for more information. We'd love to connect with you, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram pages. Enjoy this message from our senior pastor, Stefan Jones. All okay? Ready for the word? You're not going to be offended by Jesus' words? No. Okay, good. Just checking at the start. So, uh, the magic stool is coming. Thank you, uh, Thank you, Rob. Let's give the worship team a hand for their serving week in, week out, and for them doing it around a rugby game this morning as well. So, uh, so there we go. At the turn of the fourth century, in 303 AD, there was a massive persecution under the emperor Diocletian. Scriptures were burnt, bishops were executed, churches were torn down. In some places, there were mass executions of people. It seemed like as the church was approaching its 300th birthday, that there still wasn't any hope for real change in the Roman Empire. But eight years later, in 311 AD, at the Battle of Milvium Bridge, Constantine the Great became Roman Emperor. And he claimed that he saw a vision from Jesus before the battle. And so, after his victory, the persecution was ended for good. Confiscated property was returned to the church. This paved the way. He made Christianity a legal religion in the Roman Empire. And it paved the way for eventually the Roman Empire would embrace Christianity as its state religion. Now, when you consider where Christianity had started to this, this seemed like the moment of greatest victory. The church had won. It had gained the whole world. But at what cost? See, that great victory turned out to be an absolute disaster. Because the church got very, very rich. Becoming a bishop or a leader in the church was now less about finding a grassroots person who was dedicated and more about a good career move for the establishment, where once the pastor of the church had to give up his chair for someone. If someone came in and there wasn't enough chairs and someone was poor, the pastor would give up the chair. Now, the bishop sat on a throne in massive, wealthy buildings. Why am I saying this? Well, the point is this. As Jesus would say in the Gospels, immense wealth breeds corruption. Dictionary of the Gospels puts it like this. Well, Jesus never looks on possessions per se as evil. For him, wealth was not something safe, but a dangerous substance. A dangerous substance. To put it bluntly, Jesus did not speak of wealth as a help to entering the kingdom of God. He spoke of it as a hindrance to entering the kingdom of God. He didn't say it couldn't happen, but he said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is actually backed up in studies. Studies actually show that the wealthier people get, the less generous they become. Not in real, you know, not in terms of maybe what they would see maybe, because a thousand pounds, you know, in the pot looks a lot more than a hundred. But in percentage terms, the richer you are, the studies say, the less you give. Or in other words, the more wealth you accumulate, 
the greedier you tend to get. Not saying everyone, but these are the studies that show what tends to actually happen. So today we're tackling a dangerous topic. Something that can be deadly. It can corrupt your whole soul, but yet can be redeemed and used for good. It can be. So there's a warning here for the faint-hearted. This is going to be a preach of two halves, okay? The first half is a bit hellfire vibes, okay? And then the second half is a bit more heavenly vibes. So we're just going to have to roll with that because this is what Jesus actually says. So if you're new or visiting, what we're doing is at the moment is we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' kingdom manifesto. What does it mean to be a Christian? Christianity 101. These are the basics. These are the foundational aspects of what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. And we haven't picked the topics, we're just following Jesus's order of what he wants to speak about. So this is what he wants to talk to us this morning. So Christianity 101, part 12, the title, How to Handle Money. Now, money is a topic that many don't think we should talk about in church, okay? Sex and money are the two, okay, where the congregation goes very quiet and very awkward. It always happens. But the thing is, God disagrees with us if we think we shouldn't talk about money in church. There are 700 direct references to finance in the Bible. 700. Jesus has more to say on this topic than on nearly any other that he tackles. In the Sermon on the Mount alone, if you're being eagle-eyed, this is the second time he covers the topic. Highwind already covered giving generously in part 10, and then he went to the Lord's Prayer, and now Jesus is saying, hang on a sec though, I just want to double check you've got the thing about money. I'm going to teach you about money again. Yeah. That should be, you know, a bit of a wake-up call to us all to get the message. And if you grasp what Jesus says here, it's going to transform your life. Guaranteed. It will transform your life. It's going to affect the whole direction of your life, your relationship with God. It's going to affect everything. John Wesley, one of my heroes, the great revivalist, evangelical, of the 18th century and 19th century going as well. And he was the founder of the Methodists. And he said this, there are three conversions that are necessary for the Christian. A conversion of the mind, conversion of the heart, and a conversion of the wallet. Conversion of the mind, conversion of the heart, conversion of the wallet. Or purse, as he said in Old English, but that doesn't sound so good. But see, we've got a problem here, right? Because the world, the Western world today... I think we would all agree, is clearly full of greed and materialism. It's obvious, right? None of us, I don't think, would disagree with that. Yet, nobody thinks that they are greedy. We live in denial about this topic, okay? This is one of those things. Timothy Keller notes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, how he once did a seven-part series on a men's breakfast going through the same deadly sins, which is kind of a cool idea. And his wife, Kathy, told him at the start, I bet you your, your lowest attendance would be for greed. I bet you. And so they came and they did lust. And people turned up, yeah, maybe I've got a thing with this. Wrath, yeah, anger. Even pride, people came. But greed was the lowest attended one of all, because nobody thinks that they are greedy. He says this, as a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. But I cannot recall anyone ever come to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. 
I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. And the reason why is, is because you always compare yourself to someone you know who has more than you. So no one thinks they're rich. Because you always think, well, I'm not rich. Because so-and-so, I mean, they've got a bigger TV, a bigger garden, a nicer car. And then they think, well, I'm not rich because I know someone else. And so on and on it goes. Nobody thinks they're rich apart from, you know, the billionaires, which are just like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm rich. But everyone else just doesn't think so. In the U.S., apparently, studies did showed only 2% of people call themselves upper class. I mean, that's not possible. It's the richest society that's ever lived. But everyone says they're middle class. How can that actually be true? It's not true. He goes on, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, but no one thinks they're guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. So before we go to the text, I want us to say it all aloud together, that this could easily be a problem for me, okay? We're going to say it together, this could easily be a problem for me, okay? Let's start from there. All of us, don't think, oh, I hope so-and-so over there. I hope that, no, this could easily be a problem for me. For me, okay? This is it. You know, when it comes to offering slots, a good indicator is this. How much do you dislike offering slots? <laughs> How offended do you get by the offering slots? Are you someone who, when she's offering slots, thinking, why do they have to talk about money for two minutes in every service? They're always talking about money. Why are they talking about money in church? Shouldn't we just silently pass around the offering without explaining what's going on and not talk about money? The level of your offense to that is a bit of an indicator. Frank Hubbard put it like this. When a fellow says it ain't the money, but the principle of the thing, it's the money. It's the money. I have family members who criticized us the same and said, why are you always talking about money in church? Why are you talking about money in church? You shouldn't be talking about money in church. My principal in college put it like this. Lee Burns, he, he told us and teaching us about when you go and do offering slots and when you're going to have to do these things. He said, people are going to kick back against this because money is not about money. Money is a heart issue. It's a deep, deep heart issue. And the deeper the hole that money has on your heart, the more upset you're going to be when people talk about money in church. That's the reality. I told you this hellfire vibes for the first bit, okay? So, if you're uncomfortable, we're going to get into the text now, so let me pray, and then we're going to really get into what Jesus has to say here. Lord, I thank you that you have richly given us all things. I thank you that you are so generous to us, that you've given us so much. And for us sitting here in the West, how can we not but be so grateful that we have so much that most of the world never had? from running water to smartphones in our pockets. Lord, we thank you for everything. But Lord, we pray, would you deliver us from greed? Would you help us be a generous people? Lord, I pray that money would have no hold on our hearts. So I pray right now, speak. We are listening. We are listening. In Jesus' name, and we all said together, amen. Okay, let's go into it then. Matthew 6, verse 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Or literally, you cannot serve both God and mammon. And I'm going to use that translation more. Because mammon was a term at the time to refer to property and wealth in general, but it was a way of personifying it. Almost as if wealth or money was a god. And that's Jesus' point here, is that money can become a god to human beings. So my key thought is this. If Jesus is Lord, you will become indifferent to mammon. But if mammon is Lord, you will become indifferent to Jesus. You choose. If Jesus is Lord, you become indifferent to money or mammon. But if money, if mammon is Lord, you will become indifferent to Jesus. It's not a question of, you know, well, I can, I can do both. Jesus is saying, you cannot follow both. You have to follow one. And whichever one you pick has consequences for the other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this, our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion. Just the one. And Jesus being a genius, right? He's packed so much here into these words. And he's saying, you either love one, hate the other, devoted to one, despise the other. Why have I phrased it as indifferent? Okay. Well, first of all, when he says hate, it's comparative, okay? He's not saying you have to literally hate money. Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? It doesn't mean literally hate them. It means comparatively. Compared to following me, everything else seems to be like nothing. So that's the what you're saying here with money. It doesn't literally mean hate, but it means it'll be like nothing to you. And the next line reinforces that because the word for despise in the Greek, it can mean thinking less of something, becoming indifferent. And that's the nature of the issue. That's the trap that Jesus is trying to save us from. Because it's so subtle. So you can still call yourself a Christian and pay the lip service and go through the motions, but yet be totally apathetic because your heart belongs to another. What raises your pulse the most? What gets you excited and passionate? Jesus says it's a guarantee. He says the word will. You either will be devoted to God and indifferent to money, or you will be devoted to money and indifferent to God. And this is what's happened to the church in the West. This is what's happened. There's a reason, I think, that Christianity is flourishing all over the world where there's poverty, and yet the place where it's finding the toughest soil is in the wealthy West. Nicky Gumbel in the Jesus Lifestyle put it like this. As materialism has flourished, people have started to serve the God mammon and have become apathetic and unconcerned about God. One of the thorns and thistles that Jesus describes in the parable of the sower is the delight in riches. As this grows, 
it squeezes out life and the seed proves unfruitful. Ultimately, materialism is atheism. It is to be without God. If Jesus is Lord, you'll be indifferent to mammon. But if mammon is Lord, you will be indifferent to Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to stay passionate about Jesus. I don't want my heart to drift into apathy. And so I want to hear what he's saying here and work backwards for the passage. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look at his warning, consider why, and then we're going to consider positively then what can we do with our money. Okay, so let's work backwards. So how we handle money from the end of the passage. Number one, warning. Handle money with care. Handle money with care. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, the word, first noting here, for serve is a slave word. So it's not like, you know, you can have two employers and you could balance them. But here it's saying you can have two employers, but you can't have two owners. That's the implication here. And that means Jesus is saying, by the way, that money has the power to own you. Instead of you owning it, it can come to own you. It takes on the properties of a pagan god, which may seem a bit silly, but we underestimate this at our peril. My, uh, my grandfather, Colin, my English grandfather, he's, uh, he's been promoted to heaven a long time ago now, but he was a very eccentric character. I'll say that about him. He was very eccentric, and he had a, a real way of teaching me about the faith in a, a very frightening way sometimes. You know, he was convinced the world was going to end. Jesus was coming back 2006, so he wasn't right about that one. But there's some things he was right about, and he, remember him talking to me, we were in a hotel somewhere, and there were people running about and businessmen, and I was maybe about 11 or something, and he asked me, Stefan, what are the gods of this age that people worship. Fun quiz with granddad. And so uh, I had my quiz, and I was like, oh, uh, power? I think Mike maybe had covered this in youth or something. And he was like, yes. And I said, uh, uh, can I say this to my grandfather, uh, sex? And he said, yes. And then uh, I said, uh, money? And he said, yes, mammon. And then he looked like this with his arm to show the businessmen running around in the suits as if to say, look at the world. Yeah. He really showed it to us. And I remember when they built Blue Water Shopping Centre in Kent, which is this enormous, you've been there, shopping centre. His phrase for what it was, was he called it Temple of Mammon. <laughs> That's what it is. But you know what? Across the UK, at this moment, on a Sunday morning... How many are in the house of God and how many are in the house of mammon? This isn't just an issue we shouldn't talk about. This is a major issue. And Jesus' pattern here is that he portrays money as functioning like the idols in the Old Testament. In that, because in the Old Testament, by the way, right, when they, they'd worship Baal, they'd still say, yeah, I worship Yahweh as well. It's Yahweh and Baal. That's how the idols work. It says, oh, you can keep the nice things you like, but this as well, becoming different. And Jesus is saying, that's what money will do. It'll seductively draw you where you can still pay lip service to Jesus, but it will steal your heart away so that it goes somewhere else. In the parable of the sower, the wealth is personified and it's portrayed to have an effect like Satan has on you. That's, but in a slower, less dramatic, less obvious way. See, when we worship money, it seems to offer security and freedom and power and influence and status and prestige. But ultimately, like the pagan gods of old, 
it's bloodthirsty. Because money demands, if you worship it, sacrifice. It demands human sacrifice. It demands maybe your own health, working too much, around the clock, not having time off. But it means also it wants you to sacrifice other people to get it. To get money, you'll sacrifice spouses, children, family, friends, God, church. It'll all go out the window. We live in the richest civilization that's ever been, and yet it's full of broken homes. But it's not just because of divorce. Many are single-parent families because effectively one parent is absent because they're always in work. Money has the power to shape your whole life and the cost of mammon worship is very, very high. And it's never satisfied. John Rockefeller, one of the richest people who ever lived in his time in context, when he was asked how much money does it take to make someone happy, he said, just a little bit more than he has. This isn't something new. The book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And if you hear for that series, the word meaningless is the word hevel, smoky, transitory. It slips through your grasp. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't have substance. Like seawater, the more you have, the more you want. And it will kill you. It's a false god. It's a dangerous substance that has the capacity to squeeze out your love for God and his kingdom, to steal your devotion, to make you apathetic. So remember what I said earlier, we all confessed, this could easily be a problem for me. And so the first thing Jesus wants us to take is a warning to save our lives, potentially. You cannot serve both God and money. Either you serve Jesus and you become indifferent to mammon, or you serve mammon and you become indifferent to Jesus. Okay, breathe. That was the that was the hellfire bit. We got through it, guys. We got through it. Okay, next point is kind of like a half-time half transition, and then we're going to get on to the, the heavenly half. So how to handle money. Okay, number two then. How to handle money? Remember the why. Handle money with eyes fixed on heaven. Now, this next bit it seems a bit random and enigmatic. You know, what, what Jesus is on about here? Lamps and eyes, and what's this got to do with money? Okay, let's unpack this a little bit here, right? So the, the phrase in the NIV, it says, if your eyes are healthy. That's not the literal word, okay? The literal word for here is the word for single. It means complete, perfect. It can be used for undivided loyalty. R.T. France in the Tyndall commentary notes, the single eye is primarily a metaphor for a life totally devoted to the service of God. And we don't speak Greek, but there is a double entendre here as well, because the word used is very similar to a word for generosity. So Jesus is making the point that a life totally devoted to God and generosity, they go together. But if your eyes are unhealthy, now the phrase here is the phrase for literally evil eye. It's an expression used for meanness, a lack of generosity. The evil eye is fixed on materialism and selfish gain. It breeds jealousy. It's what Shakespeare called the green-eyed monster. Psychologist Oliver James put it like this, affluenza, he describes it as an obsessive, envious, keeping up with the Joneses, buying things we don't need with money we don't have to satisfy needs that can't be satisfied by material things. The evil eye can spiral out of control. So what's the whole thing about a lamp being the eyes of the body? What's going on? Well, 
What's happening here is this. The metaphor is, is that your eyes are like a lamp. So imagine a car kind of thing. Your eyes are like a lamp, and they light your path so the rest of you knows where to go. So wherever you fix your eyes, that's kind of the direction you're going to go on. That's what you're, you're going for. Now, this is why Jesus has the problem with mammon worship, because he says, if the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? You need light to walk in the darkness. If you've ever been to Karakenning Castle, it's probably one of my favorite castles. They've got that cave dungeon thing underneath, okay? And if you're, you know, if you're too chicken, you need to man up, get your torch out and go all the way in, right to the end. And then when you turn the light off, the darkness under there is like no other kind of darkness. It's like you can't see your hand. You can try, but you can't see anything. I remember going down Big Pit, you know, school trip, and they did the thing there where the miners turned the lights off, and you're like, oh, this is horrible. I can't see anything at all. And Jesus is saying, well, if your eyes aren't fixed on God, you will be stumbling around like a blind person because the lamps will be broken. That's what he's saying. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. Devotion to mammon, it makes you blind. It makes you wander off the path without realizing. And it leads you out of the faith. Like a car with a headlight that don't work anymore. When it gets dark and you want to turn the lights on, they just won't come on. The point is this, that our heart, our soul, our mind, our body, our whole destiny follows our eyes. Now that's good news, as well as bad news, depending because you get what you go for. If your devotion, if your eyes are fixed on Jesus, he's saying you will have the light that you need to follow the path and stay the path until the very end. If you keep your eyes fixed on me, you will make it to the end. That's why in the book of Hebrews, it was written to encourage a group of Christians that were really discouraged. And the climax of the whole book is, fix your eyes on Jesus the finisher and perfecter of your faith. Christian, know this morning, God has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for your life. There is significance over your life. And God is saying right now, I don't want you taken out of the game by your eyes being on the wrong thing. Heaven is screaming this morning at you. Look here, look here, look here. Eyes on the prize. This is the way home. This is the way forward. This is the way. Set your eyes on Jesus, the finisher and perfecter of our faith. If we do that, we're going to be on good ground. We're going to make it. If Jesus is Lord, the power of money will be broken over you. It'll, you will become indifferent to it gradually. But if mammon is Lord, you won't. So how to handle money? Warning, first of all. Handle it with care. And the more you have, the more this applies to you. There's a warning. Number two, but remember the why. Handle money with eyes fixed on heaven. And number three, what should I do? Handle money with intention. Handle money with intention. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What should we do? Jesus makes it obvious here. Don't bother obsessing with hoarding money on earth. It's not secure anyway. It's vulnerable. Creates problems. Can't take it with you. Instead, store up treasures in heaven. It's a far more secure investment. 
and it has eternal impact. And I think of Jim Elliot's quote here, I mean, he was speaking on martyrdom, but it's still true here that he's not a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, I remember when we were were children, Andreas was uh, my little brother. He's nine years younger than me. And I'm going to be honest, I think he worshipped Mammon a fair bit in his younger days. Because Andreas was quite the little saver. If Andreas was given money, you know, you know, when you're, you're a child and, you know, old people give you a pound, pint of ice cream. If Andreas would take the pound, but he wouldn't use it for ice cream, he would put it in a pot and hoard it away. <laughs> if Andreas had dinner money, he would starve and pocket the money so that he had money. But this meant this, that in our house, if we wanted a bit of spare cash, the best place to go was the Bank of Andreas. <laughs> Because the Bank of Andreas had 0% interest. <laughs> and, you know, there was some you know, gains in that. But, you know, he was, he, was quite, he was quite crafty with it. But even he, he knew, you know, oh, you know, I need to think about things. So when we went away on holidays, he would transfer his wealth to stop the thieves and the vermin destroying by putting it, he told us later, in the treehouse. And so the treehouse became the bank of Andreas with a secure investment. Now, but now the treehouse has fallen and probably when the treehouse fell in a storm, if you'd have been standing there, money would have rained from the heavens <laughs> upon you. But he, you know, he did his best to try and, you know, take, a, take the money away and, and, and store it up. But how do we store up treasures in heaven then? What do we do? Well, we do it by living a life of obedience to God. Okay, that, that's obvious. And this is where we can use money for good. Because like our feelings, our emotions, money is a bad master, but can be a good servant. Can be a good servant. It can be used for good. So three things, three main things we can take here. I'm going to bounce from different parts of scripture as well to maybe flesh it out a little bit more. So first of all, you meant to use your money intentionally to take care of your family. Take care of your family. We're meant to provide for our family, our relatives, and our house. Okay, that goes without saying. It's a, it's a Christian duty. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Don't mince your words, Paul. <laughs> right? But you can see here, money is spiritual. It's a faith thing. Now, obviously, it's your ability, and there's grace there. But Paul is saying, basically, there's no excuse for not trying you're meant to take care of your family. I know now I need to take care of, you know, little Manuel when he comes. I've got to make sure that he's got everything he needs. That's a, it's, a, it's a spiritual, but in all honesty, jokes aside, it's a spiritual responsibility to take care of your family. You're meant to do that. Use your money well. Secondly, some of you were shocked by this point. You can enjoy nice things with gratitude. You can enjoy it. There was one person dead. I hope everyone doesn't think I worship mammon now. (laughs) Enjoy nice things with gratitude. God himself is generous, okay? Jesus wasn't a stoic who thought it was good to suffer pain for the sake of it, that poverty was a good thing in itself. The biblical view of poverty is that it's not a good thing. We're trying to get rid of poverty. People should have enough. That's what we want, right? And so God himself is generous. It's not wrong to enjoy the good things in life. 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 says this, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. And then notice this, who richly provides us 
with everything for our enjoyment. That kind of stops the Pharisee mentality, doesn't it? Of us, you know, judging each other. You shouldn't enjoy a nice meal. You shouldn't. No, that's actually not how Jesus lived, if you see it. Jesus dined with wealthy people. He would have been an uncomfortable party guest because who knows what he's going to say, but he did dine with wealthy people. Jesus went to a lavish wedding and he made it even more lavish. He added wine to the wedding to make it a better party. When Jesus speaks of the coming kingdom of God, one of the main metaphors he uses is a party. That's one of his main metaphors, that the kingdom of God is like a party. You can enjoy good things with gratitude, but keep it in gratitude. You know, Paul says, you know, I've learned to be content with the nice things and without the nice things. But when we do have the nice things, you can still say, God, thank you for this. Thank you for this. Thank you, I have a car that works. You know, thank you, I have a, a smartphone where I can just read the Bible and I can message people all over the world and I can, you know, thank you for those things. Thank you for the blessings, for heating. You know, thank you for whatever, whatever, 24-7 drive throughs all those things. Thank you for the things that we have been given. And then thirdly, to invest into the kingdom. In this, we are not to neglect investing into the kingdom. Now, how do we do this? Roughly, there's three categories, okay? So, giving to church is in your regular tithing, giving to missions and above and beyond offerings, and giving to the poor. Those are the three kind of categories there. Um, you know, St. Augustine said maybe we should aim for 10% to church, 10% to the poor. I'm not there yet on the full 20%, but it's pretty good goal to go for. You could sum up Jesus' attitude in the Gospels to be to surplus, to be roughly speaking, if you have more than enough, the best thing to do with the more than enough is to give it to someone who has less than enough. And then you'll be storing up treasures in heaven. In 250 AD, there was another persecution under the emperor Decian, and a Roman prefect burst into a church and he said, show me your treasure. And a deacon named Lentius showed him into the next room. And he unveiled and said, this is our treasure. And in the room were widows and orphans and sick being taken care of and paupers. That's the treasures of heaven. You want to see treasures in heaven? You want to see how you can do that? You want to see a glimpse of it happening right now? Walk into kids' church. Those are the treasures of heaven. Come to youth on a Friday. Treasures in heaven. Come to the over 50s quiz night, treasures in heaven. <laughs> Go down, watch the hampers being given out, treasures in heaven. What we're trying to do in Saloa, you know, Seaside Tisha is now, I almost tell me, it's been the most deprived ward in Wales. All the brokenness, future treasure that we're trying to reach. Hat for the house was giving so we can reach them. More treasure in heaven. That's, that's what we're after. That's what we want. And that's why we need kingdom builders. You know, famously, Jesus' command to some people was where the hold of money was so deep, give it all away. That's the passage we don't like, right? The one with the rich young ruler where he says, what must I do, Jesus, to be saved? And Jesus looks at him and he sees that the, the money worship has gone so deep. The only keyword is a drastic one. And he says, give it all away. Follow me, be a disciple. And the guy can't. And he actually says he walks away sad with all his wealth. 
But Jesus didn't say that to everybody, okay? To some people, he said to them, basically, use the wealth for the good of the kingdom. And we see this in Matthew 27, verse 57 and 58, after the crucifixion, when it was evening and there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body. Joseph of Arimathea, it says here, was a rich man. It's explicit. And he used his wealth to secure a tomb for Jesus' body. His wealth was used to fulfill the purposes of God and to fulfill biblical prophecy. He put his wealth to use for the kingdom, above and beyond. In Luke 8 verse 1, 3, we read, and I'm going to read it now, how Jesus' ministry was financially supported by a group of wealthy women. It's not wrong to invest and make money. The parable of the talents speaks approvingly of making money and being a good steward of it. Some people are called to make money and to make a lot of money for the kingdom of God. That is a biblical principle. Nicky Gumbel notes in the book how a member of his congregation came up to him in the 80s telling him he felt a call to finance, to make money, to invest into the kingdom. And now all these years later, he's watched him and he said, as I've watched him over the last 20 years, he has been absolutely faithful to that calling, living relatively modestly compared to how he could live, but giving increasingly large sums. This is a specific calling for some people in this room right now and in church. The church needs them. They're not to be put to one side as something, you know, we're just a bit embarrassed about. This is a spiritual calling for some people. This will be their main ministry in how they serve God. We're planning in 2020 to make this an official ministry of the church next year, by the way, Kingdom Builders. Because I know I can think of a few people who this is what they would say, I want to do. I want to do this for the kingdom. So, summing up here, what should we do with our money? We should handle it very intentionally. Don't let it just slip through your hands. Take care of your family. Take care of daily needs. It's okay to enjoy nice things with gratitude. Be thankful to God for them. But be intentional in storing up treasures in heaven and about investing into the cause of heaven. And ultimately, this is the thing, if your eyes are fixed on Jesus, this will naturally start to happen anyway. It'll become easier because if Jesus is Lord, you'll become indifferent to mammon. It'll, its hold will lose, be lost on you. But if mammon is Lord, you will become indifferent to Jesus. And the keys can come up as I wrap up here. Because this is a hard thing, right? Today, we've touched on deep waters. Deep waters. This is real talk and real stuff. And the reason we know this, it can cap it off in verse 21. I mean, this is a sermon just in itself. Matthew 6 verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now the word in the Greek for heart is about more than emotions. It's the word for your inner being. So it's like the word for your thoughts, your will, and your emotions. So where your will is, where your mind is, and where your, you know, mushy heart emotions are, that's where the treasure is. That's what's going to come. Giving a spiritual. Jesus is saying, basically, your heart, your mind, your will, it'll follow where you put your treasure. It'll follow it. Stephen Matthew says in Money Matters, if you want to know where a person's heart really lies, look where they put their money. 
The stingy hoarder reveals his heart of selfishness, where the person who gives gladly to the kingdom reveals his first allegiance to God. I remember being in a, a conference of leaders from all over Europe, and that was one of the main takeaways of them. We're asking, how do you know if, if someone is really with you? And the two things are, do they show up regularly? And do they give? Because if they don't give, they're not really with you. And if they do give, odds are they are with you because it was a sacrifice. It reveals your heart. Your heart follows your treasure. And actually, this is where there's good news. Because if you want to increase your level of passion for the kingdom, put your treasure there and your heart will follow it. In the same way where we see if you made an investment into one specific company and it was a big investment, you are going to be reading the Financial Times very closely over the next few months to see how is my investment going to go. In the same way, when you repeatedly give and sow into the kingdom of God, it draws you to look closer at how my investment is going. It draws you into the life of God. If you invest into the kingdom, the effect on your spiritual life, it will increase your passion, not decrease it. It can be used, money, this is where it can be redeemed. It can be used to fuel your passion for God rather than squeeze the life out of it. I'm going to finish by quoting what Nicky Gumbel says at the end of the book because it's always nicer to hear it from someone else. And he says this, we should hold on to everything loosely. By the way, Robert Ferguson, one of the main things he taught us in college was that, hold everything loosely. If you can't let go of it, that's a sign that now it owns you. If you can let go of it, it's a sign you're still over it. Hold it loosely. Hold cars loosely. Hold houses loosely. That's what he was telling us. Hold everything loosely. When you got it, great. If not, if God tells you to give your car to someone else, follow his prompting, which is radical, but you know, yeah, it's true. We should hold on to everything loosely. We break the power of materialism by generous and cheerful giving. Again, this is an act of the will, saying no to mammon and yes to God. We cannot serve them both. Generous giving is an affront to mammon. That's why people don't like giving and offering slots in church, because it's a challenge to materialism. Giving is an affront to mammon. It destroys the demon greed. That demon will scream out, you can't do this to me. And we should reply, yes, I can, and yes, I will. And in doing so, you kill it. Sometimes like a weed, it reemerges, and we have to kill it again by continuing to give generously. N.T. Wright sums it up like this, generous giving celebrates the fact that Jesus is Lord and mammon is not. I love that quote so much. So the application this week, it's pretty obvious, I think, isn't it? Give. Store up treasures in heaven. Kill the demon greed. Break the power of money by giving it away. And this is my advice for you here. Don't make the world your standard of generosity because the world worships mammon. Make the word your standard of generosity. Make that your standard. Don't make put a pound in a bucket your standard of generosity. 
Make the word of God your standard of generosity. You know, by the world standards, a tithe seems enormous, ridiculous. Giving 10% of your income away every month to church seems crazy. But by the word standards, you've, you're not even reaching the minimum if you're not giving to the poor. You've barely begun to create a launch pad. You definitely haven't stored up any treasure yet. You're doing the bare minimum. If you're storing up treasure in heaven, it's actually going above and beyond. So the first thing, three applications here, depending on who you are, maybe you need all of them, maybe there's one of them, maybe God is speaking to you right now. Firstly is maybe the tithe. You know, tithing is a milestone in your Christian journey when you begin to tithe. You know, being saved, being baptized, being filled with the Spirit, starting to serve on team, tithing. It's one of those milestones in your Christian journey when you fill in that direct debit form or you put it on your bank to stand in order and you let it go and you make it every month. It's a real milestone in your journey. Secondly is give to a missions offering. Now, if you missed Heart for the House, it's still open. You can give to Heart for the House. But this is what that category is, the category of above and beyond offerings, you know, mission offerings, something to help the gospel get out, something that's more than just tithing, is just making the house work. The mission offerings are about, right, what are we doing to advance the gospel? So maybe you need to give to half a house, but maybe God's leading you to something else, whatever. And thirdly, it's to give in charitable ways to the poor or to a cause. But maybe God is prompting you right now, someone you know is in need. And maybe God's telling you, just give it to them. Yeah. Don't do it for the glory. Just slip it in their hand or give someone else, you know, do it. Give someone else an envelope say, can you give it to that person? Maybe God's calling you to do that today. Maybe he's asking you to do all three. But my advice is this. Hold the money loosely because you will be free as a result. And if your wealth is growing... That can be used for the glory of God. But heed the warning at the beginning. Make a decision now that I'm going to buck the trend. I'm not going to become less generous as my income grows. I'm going to become more generous. I'm going to not live as the world lives. I'm going to live different. Now, I didn't really get this until college. I didn't really get how important this was, how spiritual it was, until we did our assessment studying 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is Paul talking about money in depth. And the conviction in me was massive that this is a huge spiritual biblical issue but I've noticed that as I've obeyed and gone on this journey I feel freer as a result I've noticed my indifference to money growing that I care about it less I've still got a long way to go but I care about it less my increase is going up, I hope, in, gen in generosity. You know, for me and, and Mars and for our house, John Norman really just inspired us in confidence when he was saying the things he confesses over his life every day. And one of the things he says was, he confesses, I'm going to be a person who borrows from none, gives to many. Borrows from none, gives to many. And we've made that our declaration as a family. We are working towards being a people who borrow from none, give to many. That's a journey. We're not there yet, but we're going to borrow from none, give to many. That's what I want. That's the kingdom thing. So church, let's be a generous people who reflect our God in heaven. Let's be a people known for radical, shocking generosity. Let's be a people who honor God in this house who honor his house, who give to advance his kingdom, who give liberally towards the poor, 
the forgotten, the left behind, the people in need. Let's be a people who are so free from the hold of money, people look on and think, I want that freedom. I want it. If Jesus is Lord, you will become indifferent to mammon. It's going to happen. So let's be a church where it's obvious that we're indifferent to mammon. Because Jesus really is Lord. Lord over our lives and Lord over our wallets. In this place, let's make a statement in cheerful, radical generosity to a materialistic, wealth-obsessed world that in this place, as for us and God's house and our house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus is Lord and mammon is not. Amen? Maybe you're feeling challenged this morning. I am. <laughs> I'm challenged by it. And maybe wondering, well, how, how do I even do this? The key is to realize that this is nothing that God hasn't already done for you already. You can take your seats. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus left absolute splendor as the Prince of Heaven. He left splendor and wealth unimaginable to be born in a manger and live in poverty in the ancient world as a carpenter. He became totally poor so we could become rich. Jesus gave up the best and embraced the worst so we could be delivered from the worst and gain the best. He died death on a cross. When only did he lose his life and lose his dignity, they even took the few possessions he had with his clothes and tore them up and gave them away by lot. He lost relationship with the Father in that moment. He lost everything in total poverty so that we could be gained as a result. Do you see that this morning? That he took our place in poverty so that we could become rich beyond measure. And not rich in money, but rich in grace, rich in mercy, rich in joy, rich in peace, rich in purpose, rich in love, rich in salvation and rich in right relationship with our maker becoming his children his heirs that we now call him dad Abba father because Jesus gave it all away for us see Paul is saying here this topic is central to understanding the nature of the gospel itself it's not a side issue. If you see God himself dying in poverty on a cross so that you can become rich, it radically enables you to give your things away. Because what is that? Did Jesus tithe his blood? 
He gave all his blood. He gave all his life. He went further than what he asks of us. And so in, in relation to that, it's not such a big deal. The hymnist put it like this. With the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. He's worthy of it all. He is worthy of our worship and he is worthy of our wallets. He's worthy of it all. And if you are neighbor visiting, I want to tell you this. Jesus died for you. See, the Bible says that all of us, whether we have lots of money or not, are poor because we live broken, because we have fallen, we have gone away from God. And when you don't have God, you haven't got anything, nothing Nothing is worthwhile compared to that. That we are all broken sinners in need of grace, in need of love, in need of forgiveness, in need of eternal life, in need of salvation from judgment. And so Jesus died and paid the price with his own blood for you. So you could be saved. So you could know peace. So all the riches of heaven could be yours. And in this life, although nothing is guaranteed, what is guaranteed is that he will be with you and he will be the greatest blessing of all because nothing else compares to that. He has a purpose for you and a plan for you. But you have to receive this gift from him this morning. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, I'm going to ask you to pray with us all together as a family to receive this gift from God that didn't come cheap, but it's given to you freely because he loves you so much. If you want to make that your prayer this morning and receive the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and right relationship with God, make this your heart's prayer. So come on, let's all of us together join in. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that though you were rich, you became poor for me. That you died on the cross for me. That you give your blood for me. I am sorry for my sin and all of my mistakes. Forgive me and change me and make me new. I thank you that I'm now a Christian, that I'm now rich beyond all measure because I have a relationship with you. Help me to love you and to love others, to keep my eyes fixed on you until I see you face to face. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from 21st Century Church. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd appreciate it if you could review and share it on social media. Remember to check us out at 21stCenturyChurch.co.uk for any more information. We'll see you next time.